Hey, everybody, we had a quick show tonight, just a power hour of Solo Spain. Fitz had the night off, and we were going into some NBA. So just a couple quick segments, but hopefully you enjoy the pod and stick around for a little solo after party, too. It's a Solo Spain power hour, Spain and Fitz, right here on ESPN Radio, the ESPN app, Sirius XM Channel 80, the Heat taking out the Bucks. We were saying all season long that this Heat team would be the one to press the top-seeded Milwaukee team. They're now 3-1 and one overall against the Bucks this season. And what we saw was exactly what you can't have if you're a Milwaukee Bucks team. They weren't allowed to get out and run. They could not score inside. Their interior defense was weak against the opposition, and Giannis was not a superstar out on the court. If you didn't know anything about these two teams and you were watching, Jimmy Butler was the alpha. Goran Dragic was an alpha. Giannis, eh, 18 points, 10 rebounds, 9 assists. It looks okay. Almost a triple-double in the books, but 4 of 12 from the free-throw stripe, and he only shot 12 times in the game. You can get good games from Chris Middleton and Brooke Lopez, and you're going to need them because you're not going to win in the playoffs with just one big-man superstar. And the team shot well, but it wasn't enough. You need Giannis to dominate, and you need to be able to do the things that you do well. And instead... The key was that the Heat were doing what the Bucs usually do best. They had 42 points in the game in the paint. The Bucs had just 24, which was a season low. And that, to me, feels like a very poorly kept secret to beating Milwaukee. The Bucs won in four now this season when they've got 30 or fewer points in the paint. Giannis couldn't put in work inside. And he shot all right from outside, but that's not what he does. Jimmy Butler was the max player, superstar, swaggy, as Mina Kimes says, he's the guy on day one of every reality show that says I'm not here to make friends. He hasn't been anywhere he's gone, really. But the Miami Heat is getting the best of him, and whether that's Heat culture fostering him and letting him be who he is or just the right combination of coach and teammates, we're seeing some of the best Jimmy Butler. He had 14 of a playoff career-high 40 in the fourth quarter last night. Picked a good night for his shot to look better than it has all season. And then you add in Goran Dragic, who had 27. He now has five straight games with 20-plus points. Uh, so those two guys putting it on when it counts most. But w- worth remembering, by the way, though, that the Bucks still were without Eric Bledsoe, who had a strained right hamstring. And they also dropped game one of their first-round series against Orlando. So we can't get too far ahead of ourselves. We can, of course, expect Giannis to shoot better than 30% from the stripe. As much as he struggled, that's uh, that's just too bad for me to accept that he will play uh, shoot that poorly from free throw going forward. And also that, you know, we had a lot of hype around that Blazers-Lakers series. This is the team to beat them. This is the one to challenge them. They won the first game, and then the number one seed settled in and figured it out. So I'm not quite ready to anoint the Heat as the favorite in this series. But that game and the Heat's 3-1 to record against the Heat, certainly an eye-opener. Uh, sorry, against the Bucks this season, certainly an eye-opener. Um Later that night, uh, last night, we also got a thriller between the disgruntled former Rocket Chris Paul uh, just putting one on his old team and firming up what is already a very well-established reputation for the Thunder as the team's uh, this, the, the league's most clutch team, doing it late, uh, 15 of his 28 points in the fourth quarter. And, and while we're watching him do what we've kind of come to expect from Chris Paul, where he facilitates and he sets people up and plays the good point guard early on and then takes over and dominates down the stretch— Russell Westbrook was a mess, and listen, they're no doubt happy to have him back, but in the final minute or so, an air ball, a turnover, and I was screaming at my TV just what J-Will was screaming about this morning on uh, KJ and Z. 
for him to not give the ball for this team for Mike D'Antoni to not give the ball to James Harden the last three possessions of the ball game. Houston, what are we doing? What are we doing? He's been your bread and butter the whole season. Russ has been out for the last playoff series pretty much until the last two games. James Harden needs the ball. Give him the ball. It's that simple. It is simple. And listen, James Harden sometimes has forgotten how to basketball in important games and important series, but he is still your guy, and he is still one of the toughest guys in the history of the game to guard. Why you got Russell Westbrook bringing the ball down and putting it in his hands down the stretch here is beyond me. Uh, So we go to a Game 7, and after the game, Chris Paul maybe took a little shot at the Rockets and James Harden's inability to finish. You know, when it gets to... Clutch time, fourth quarter, some people built for it. Some people shy away from it. You know, you saw Dane, all that stuff. Like, some, some people built for it, man, and we're just going to keep hooping. All right, so is he hyping himself at the Blazers or is he taking shots at the Rockets? I'm not sure. But he, of course, followed it up by saying, of course the opponent is, is inconsequential. Ain't nothing like it. No matter who it's against, it's a game seven. You know what I mean? I just want my guys to know that, you know, we, we, we gave ourselves a chance, you know? You know, you're saying, you saying we got a chance? <laughs> we got a chance, so we're going to keep fighting. All right, that's the worst uh, job ever of saying that line from Dumb and Dumber, but his point is a valid one. Although I'm not buying that there's no revenge here for getting shipped to a team that had essentially no expectations and publicly discussed as a cancer and a tough teammate to get along with. And I'm sure there's a little extra glee in being part of the reason that this Houston team might get blown up. Um, And speaking of that, if Chris Paul and the Thunder do pull this off, Tim Legler has a thought on what an early exit for the Rockets would mean for James Harden. Until he gets them all the way, and I mean talking about two-way finals, he's going to continue to deal with this every time his teams come up short in the postseason. So I think a lot of it's going to fall at his feet. He has to have a a big-time performance. When When you put your offense, Greeny, that much in one player's hands, the way that they do, it's unprecedented in NBA history, the way they operate their offense around one player, well, then you need to come through with a huge performance when your team has to have it. Um, So it's going to fall in large part at his feet, and I think obviously with Mike D'Antoni not having a new contract, I think that would lead to a coaching change as well. So there's going to be some definite changes the way you look at everything, and there's no question Harden can't escape this if they don't win this game. Yeah, you live or die with him all season long. You're going to live or die with him in Game 7. That's going to be a good one. ESPN Radio, presented by Progressive Insurance. At Progressive, they're making things even easier. They'll help you bundle your home and car insurance together so you can save on both. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. It's Spain and Fitz. Solo Spain guest join us on the Shell Penzo Performance Line. Coming up, Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post going to talk about the latest with the Washington football team. Solo Spain taking you into Jazz Nuggets. Game 7 right here. Coverage begins at 8 Eastern on ESPN Radio. And it's time for some Straight Talk brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No one better to give us the Straight Talk than Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post. Sally, thanks for the time. Happy to be here. Hard to keep up with all the stories and things to talk about with this Washington football team. The latest, of course, that the NFL is taking over the investigation into the team and that Dan Snyder conveniently said after that was announced that it was his idea. Uh, You buying that? No. God, no. I mean... Uh, look, let's face it, uh, th- this was imposed on him. Beth Wilkinson is not anybody that Snyder would ever voluntarily hire to look at his organization. Uh, he was given a short list of um, of very tough choices, and he's making the best of what's being imposed on him by the league. 
So why did the league take over? Because I I know there was some public pushback on the idea that there would be a self-investigation in the first place. But, uh, you know, why would Goodell release that statement deciding on an independent attorney um, and, 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 you know, something outside of the team itself? Well, I mean, I think the league wants to avoid any impression that there could be a whitewash here. Um, 47% of their audience, they say, is female. They actually have made a, a you know, a sincere, genuine effort to uh, make the head league office in Manhattan uh, more inclusive as far as their hiring practices. For sure. Yeah. I, I think it's, you know, I mean, I think it's something they actually care about, believe it or not. Um, I think they... You know, they were pretty traumatized by the Ray Rice stuff in 2014. The league has tried hard. You know, this is not uh, the old um, league. There's a lot of new, fresh, um, you know, perspective in the league. There's a, there's a lot of good people in the league, a lot of classy organizations, and um, I don't think they like being associated with this. And And quite honestly, then there's probably some franchises that feel like, you know, we could be in the crosshairs next. Um, I think they feel like this is something that they have to look at seriously and, and they can't look like it's a cover-up uh, because otherwise uh, it's really, really uh, pretty distasteful stuff. I mean, uh, you know, quite honestly, these are just the bravest women who are coming forward. If this is going to progress like, say, things in Hollywood did or things that CBS did, the worst is yet to come. Yeah, and that's pretty remarkable to say when there's already 42 women and over 100 sources in these stories from the Washington Post. To your point, I don't think the front office of the NFL really resembles that much a lot of the teams. There are some incredible women. Sam Rappaport, who's running the sort of diversity side of the league. Um, how can you uh, work or or how can how can the league work to connect what appears to be the ethos at the highest levels with what the culture might be at some of these teams where it's more up to owners, GMs, coaches to institute things like women aren't allowed to go in certain parts of the building because they may be a distraction, right? I mean, that's the kind of thing that if the front office of the NFL heard and knew about, I can't imagine they would let fly. So where's the disconnect? You know, the the disconnect is that it's a trade association of 32 separate businesses. The the league office has to try to uh, model good behavior and forge consensus from, you know, among a bunch of pirates in a treasure cove dividing up the treasure. That's the job of the commissioner, essentially, right? And um, and so Goodell in Manhattan, Roger Goodell in the league office, in Man- and, and, and Jeff Pash and the other leaders, Lisa Friel, um, they have to set the example in New York and hope it's followed by other franchises, and they have to um, forge alliances and consensus among among these 32 teams. And some of them are more progressive. Some of them are less progressive. Some of them are richer. Some of them are poorer. It's actually a pretty diverse group of people within that 32 um, group of, you know, that group of 32. Uh, Some people are more active than others in league leadership. You know, you've got John Mara in New York, who's extremely active. And then you've got other people who really don't do anything but cash their checks, which would have been Dan Snyder's profile, quite frankly. Um, So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very strange business. It doesn't resemble any other business really in the country. But but what they um, all have in common is that they're subject to state laws about these sorts of things. So, for instance, uh, these videos, these perving videos of cheerleaders where there's shots of, of, of women nude, their breasts and their crotches that they didn't necessarily 
consent to being shared with other people, okay, that's a crime, right? And so right. it doesn't really matter, um, uh, you know, who your owner is. The Virginia state law trumps, you know, all of that. And so um, that's the dilemma for the league is they're trying to figure out uh, were laws broken? How much is the liability here for the individual member of our trade association? And yet what also is the message to our broader audience, 47% of which is, is female, an audience we've tried very, very hard to do right by lately. Sally Jenkins of the Washington Post with us here on Spain and Fitz Solo Spain tonight on ESPN Radio. Do you think that laws need to be broken in order for them to feel comfortable removing Daniel Snyder? I heard you on Lebetard and you were very uh, wise in, in saying that a lot of these owners don't have much of a leg to stand on with their own uh, uh you know, potentially bad behavior. And so they're not likely to call out a fellow owner and risk the microscope being turned on them. Um, So it's sort of just a bunch of people who know he's been creating a a bad reputation for that team in this league for quite some time, but no one really willing to demand his removal. Well, so yeah, some people don't have a leg to stand on and some do. Um, I, you know, I, I don't think any of them are happy being associated with, with this sort of rampant, indiscreet, obvious misogyny that that apparently was being carried on in this building. And one of the most interesting things in the letter from the lawyers, Lisa Banks and Deborah Katz, to the league is, uh, if you look at that letter, now they have a pretty amicable relationship with the league. They got a meeting very quickly. They've gotten some results very quickly. But that letter, if you look at it, one of the things it says is that uh, this has been very well known around the league for years. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that happens in the NFL is people change jobs, right? Young people come into the league, they go to work for one organization, uh, they lose that job, they get laid off, or they leave, and they get hired by... So there are people who have worked in that building, and they're spread out all over the league, and they all know, and they've all told uh, their superiors or other people in the league, everyone at the New York Giants knows everything that's going on in the building in Ashburn. They just do. And John Mara is probably privy to some information based on people who worked in Ashburn, um, and the same thing is true in Dallas and Philadelphia and San Francisco. Um, you know, Kyle Shanahan is now, you know, a pretty powerful head coach in San Francisco. He could tell you a lot about the culture inside the building that he experienced in Washington. But more importantly, so can lots of women who came in as interns and are now scattered around the league at other at other teams, right? Um, it's not so much what a Kyle Shanahan experienced as what people in middle and lower management experienced. And if it's a culture of misogyny that was out there and lots of people knew it and they just let it exist, that's a problem for the league. Yeah, I mean, it feels like there are enough people that stayed silent on this. It's an indictment, of course, of the very top and everybody who created the culture, but also anybody and everybody that allowed it to continue without speaking out. We're running out of time here, Sally, but your latest uh, is powerful as always and as strong as always on this. The NFL knows it has a problem with Daniel Snyder. Now it needs a solution in the Washington Post if people want to read it. minute or so less, what are the next steps here? Well, I think you got to let Beth, Beth Wilkinson's going to go to work, and, and she is no joke. And the league has completely empowered her, and not only that, but they've actually, uh, you know, arm wrestled with Snyder enough to say you're going to you're going to provide uh, non-disclosure agreement releases for these women to talk to Beth Wilkinson, 
and uh, we'll we'll see what what happens from there. You know, the big test is going to be: Will the league and Will Snyder release these women to speak publicly? Will they mm-hmm. release the report that Wilkinson produces publicly? Yeah, it's really a question now of what the league wants. I can tell you this: you know this probably better than I do. Dan Snyder does not have a constituency among the NFL ownership. Right. There's nobody jumping up here going, "I support Dan." That is right. the one thing we know is not happening. So that's you know, a big we'll, part we'll, of it. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, and the transparency is huge. Sally, fantastic job with this uh, coverage as always, and thanks for the time. My pleasure. Good to Sally talk. Jenkins of the Washington Post giving you the straight talk. Brought to you by Straight Talk Wireless. No contract, no compromise, and that last bit is so important. Are the women being allowed to tell the truth? Because if not, it's not a real investigation. And are we going to get to hear what they uncover? Because if not, we are going to continue to have questions and wonder if they're hiding things. Before we go tonight, I wanted to get into the latest in this Big Ten uh, story. We've got Dan Patrick reporting via a source. If conference can pass updated safety measures and procedures, Big Ten targeting October 10th to start football season. This after was pretty much wrapped up that they weren't going to play. But now a push from parents, a lawsuit from Nebraska, and now President Trump lining up against the Big Ten presidents, setting up a meeting with embattled Commissioner Kevin Warren about, quote, immediately starting up Big Ten football, this after tweeting that he wanted it now. Harry Lyles, Jr., ESPN College football reporter, was on with Shanae and Golick, Jr. right before this show and talked about it. The president's gotten involved in sports, especially the past few months, when there is a very outwardly divisive issue that leaks into news cycles outside of sport. And that's why it's notable that it's and not a coincidence today that he also spoke out against the NBA and its players. And, you know, so he says he talked to Kevin Warren and says that it was very productive and, you know, that they'd get back to playing. I think he said again and immediately um, with not a whole lot of context other than some superlatives. But you'll notice that like the Pac-12, other group of five conferences or even other divisions aren't a concern here. And, you know, the White House told ESPN, my colleagues Heather Dinich, Marsh Schlebaugh and Adam Rittenberg, who've all done a great job of, you know, reporting this thing out all summer, um, that they, being the White House, haven't reached out to the Pac-12. And that's because the Big Ten has been the talking point nationally for the past few weeks because the parents are speaking out and lowering up. Yeah, there's a lot there. Um, You know, specifically when he says, again and immediately. That means before November 3rd, because this is about, as Lyles Jr. said, using a hot topic that everyone's talking about to try to get out to the Midwest swing states that are clearly a big part of this Big Ten picture. The White House didn't reach out to the Pac-12, not just because parents aren't lawyering up there and it's not quite as hot of a topic, but also because those aren't the states he's looking for as much. Lyles Jr. went on to talk about how Kelly Leffler is using a battle with her Atlanta Dream Team in the WNBA to help a campaign run. And that seems to be exactly what's going on here. And it's one thing for a very well-funded private company like the NBA to buy better access to tests. We've had conversations about the optics of that since day one of this hitting sports with Rudy Gobert and the Jazz and that game being canceled and and the access to tests to find that out. We can keep having conversations about that, but it comes down to the same issues of uh, of the average non-pandemic day, right? The NBA has the money for private jets and fancy hotels and to spend the money necessary to finish their season even if that requires an overwhelming number of tests and the ability to push those tests to move faster through the labs than the average testing center. It's an entirely different thing for the government 
to put the testing of college football players ahead of everyday Americans or funding for small business relief or more research on any number of things that are more pressing needs for the majority of Americans right now, as it feels like we're sliding back further into this coronavirus pandemic than early on when we started to get a handle and flatten the curve. So it's not about politics entering sports because that seems almost inevitable and unavoidable right now between COVID-19 and how that overlaps with policy and social issues, race relations and how that overlaps with sports. It's more about the president appearing to use sports and these guinea pig unpaid pawns, many of whom are not even out of their teen years, as a means to win votes. He's speaking out against the NBA for obvious reasons, predominantly people of color who are uh, taking opposing views to a lot of what the president has been speaking out about in terms of defending the Kenosha shooter or defending the police, while many of the players in the NBA bubble are speaking out for Black Lives Matter and otherwise. So while he is decrying the NBA players' decision to speak out about issues that are close to them. He is simultaneously inserting himself into another sports discussion unnecessarily because, for the reasons Lyles Jr. uh, laid out, it's a topic that has people's ear. Now, Terrell Crosby, uh, who is a member of the Lions, tweeted out, apparently having politics in sports is only good when it involves trying to sway votes. However, when we athletes talk about the inequality people of color deal with, we're told to shut up and do our job. I mean, that's nothing new. It's well stated by Crosby. But we've seen this a million times before, right? The difference here is, is the president's decision to reach out to Kevin Warren and to sort of make him a punching bag in order to prove that he's willing to mow down anyone that stands between people and their beloved football is that effective regardless of whether it works, right? Is it, is it meaningful to him and to anyone who wants their football to at least prove that these coaches and players and anyone on the side of playing has fought their hardest, even if they're not the decision makers, right? You can go after Kevin Warren. You can go after the coaches. But in the end, the decision is being made by presidents that are trying to keep entire campuses functioning and are learning within days of students returning, that is far more difficult than they thought it would be. There's also people who are trying to somehow hold up the idea of this amateurism model that is constantly being threatened and has been for decades now incrementally with each passing year, and more so now as you offer up the potential for the only way to play sports being some sort of bubble where you treat student-athletes completely differently than regular students, which we already know is happening, but which they try to deny at every turn. There's a lot of things that would need to change and a lot of people whose minds would need to change that are not the ones we're hearing from. It's not up to the coaches. It's not up to the president of the United States. It's not up to Kevin Warren even. It's up to the presidents and chancellors. And so this might just be posturing for political gain and for public gain, right, to, to, to earn people's pat on the back for fighting as hard as you can for something that's a done deal. Now, maybe this Thanksgiving start is something that could still be looked at. It certainly feels like that. But the idea that they would play immediately, which is what the president keeps pushing for, is literally something being laughed at. And the reason it matters so much is because Thanksgiving, again, comes at the end of November. And in order to use this as a means of getting votes, you would need to have them playing before November 3rd so that you could hold it up as proof, not only that the country and so many of its traditions and its beloved events have been 
taken away because of a mishandling of coronavirus, but also that you personally were responsible for bringing back the thing that we love. You know, all's fair in love and politics and war, right? But it is concerning to consider who's at the center of all of this, which is teenagers and kids and unpaid laborers. And if we're really willing to deploy tons of rapid testing so that we can try to force this through, even as the experts are telling us we shouldn't, even as they're saying an unusually high rate of myocarditis, a heart condition, is springing up in these athletes in a test across the three months that an Ohio State medical expert put on, even as we're learning and hearing all these reasons not to do it, uh, the, the, th- the, the thought that it would be pushed through for a, a political gain uh, is, is deeply troubling. And uh, especially when you lay it out across the, the ways in which, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're putting this on certain people and blaming them for what is ultimately um, something none of us are in control of, which is this virus. Wow, after party of one, that's pretty depressing. Thanks for nothing, Fitz. Just kidding. I actually had something I wanted to talk about, and I was going to bowl over Fitz and bury him with my uh, with my uh, just completely taking over anyway, so this worked out perfectly. Quick thing I wanted to say about fantasy football before I get to the, uh, the bowling over and opinion giving. We are going to pick our fantasy football winners tomorrow, two people that will be entered into the league with us and uh, Jordan Cornett and Shea Pepler, his wife, and uh, Jeff Passan and his son, and Shanae and Golick Jr. Going to be good, a good one, going to be fun. Courtney Cronin in there as well. Uh, if you haven't checked it out yet on Twitter, at Sarah Spain, at Spain and Fitz, at Jason Fitz, use the hashtag Spain and Fitz Fantasy League and suggest names for the league, not for teams, but for the league itself. And we're going to pick our two favorites. And uh, as we've said before in this little after party, if you happen to mention Shiva from the league, or maybe it's a league related joke, we might give you a little extra bump in our consideration. No promises, uh, but always good to prove that you're uh, sticking around for the after party. Uh, All right, so this after party is going to be not very party-like because it's really just me expressing my disappointment in Novak Djokovic, who uh, has quickly gone from a funny guy who's really good at tennis and the worm and does funny impressions and seems to have a good personality as someone who has made a lot of missteps. Um, He is now resigned as president of the ATP Player Council, and he's founded a new association with uh, with a Canadian tennis player, Vasek Pospisil, and uh, they, they're calling it the Professional Tennis Players Association. They think it can coexist with the ATP Player Council, but they are uh, they're uh, turning a lot of people off on the idea that during this pandemic, when the tennis ecosystem is already struggling, when obviously players are struggling for money and tournaments are trying to figure out how to keep going on, that they would split that, that there would be a schism between different representatives and different unions. Uh, Federer, Nadal, Murray, they've all spoken out against it. The ATP, the WTA, the ITF, all four Grand Slams have said unity is the right move right now. Um, and, uh, you know, one of the things that makes this a little more difficult is, is you know, Novak Djokovic is kind of on weird standing right now, weird footing. This is from the New York Times because they summed it up better than I could uh, about his off-season, quote, quote-unquote off-season, which has been this uh, coronavirus hiatus. Quote, he generated concern and controversy by questioning vaccination and claiming that water could be affected by human emotions. And he dented his credibility and brand by organizing the Adria Tour, a charity exhibition series in Serbia and Croatia in June that seriously lacked in social distancing and decorum, leading to a cluster of coronavirus cases. 
It was canceled before the finish with several leading players and some support staff testing positive. Unquote. That included him and his family, by the way. And we all saw the videos of them partying it up, limbo competitions, dancing on stage at a nightclub while telling everybody that Serbia was in a different place than the rest of the world and there was no reason for them to be concerned about social distancing, posing with 100 or so kids, no masks, no distancing, and all sorts of people tested positive. So he's taking this bad momentum of an offseason, which he's, he's created a lot of waves, and now trying to get people to side with him in a new association that only represents men. And what I love about... Andy Murray, who, by the way, uh, was victorious today in his return after retiring, uh, won his match today, is he's always been on the side of women. And he said he would not be signing a letter of support and said he wants to learn more about it. He wants to see what their vision is. But also, quote, the fact that women aren't a part of it, I feel like that would send a significantly, well, just a much more powerful message personally if the WTA were on board with it as well. That's not currently the case. I just want to shout out Andy Murray for always being on the side of women. And tennis is one of the sports where there's been so much fighting done from some of the strongest voices, Billie Jean King, Venus and Serena Williams, for equal pay, for, for them to have standing at these tournaments that's equal with the men, for them to get to play on the major courts, because they often outdraw the men. They often out-earn the men in terms of interest and ratings and, and even investment. So to try to sever that connection and that unity with a men's player-only union in addition to one that already exists, not, not a union itself, but in that ATP Player Council, uh, this feels ill-advised, bad timing, and from all we've heard from Novak Djokovic about his views on equal pay for women and how he views the female players on the tour, uh, I'm not surprised that anyone who would side with women and the fight for this equal you know, unity moving forward would not be uh, ready to jump in on this special Novak Djokovic side project. Uh, that's it. That's it for the after party. Just me ranting about tennis. That's not going to happen very often. Maybe it will. Maybe it will after Williams if she wins this uh, this tournament and ties up Margaret Court. You'll have to check back in to find out. Fitz will be back tomorrow. See ya.